This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This podcast is sponsored by Genesis Aerosystems, a Moog company and leading provider of autopilots for rotor and fixed-wing aircraft. The Genesis STEC 5000 is the latest digital autopilot providing increased safety plus decreased pilot workload. It's being certified for Part 23 and Part 25 retrofit aircraft such as high-performance turboprop and turbine jet aircraft. To learn more about the STEC 5000, visit genesis-aerosystems.com. This week on Hangar Talk, 121.5 ELTs are history. And we have certification news from both Technum and Cessna's Longitude. Also, the Notum book, is it out of date? AOPA fly-ins. Where are we going to go this year? All right, Dave, you ready to do some Hangar Talk? Let's do some Hangar Talk, Ian. From AOPA, your freedom to fly. This is Hangar Talk. Yeah, 1056, turn right, heading 130, contact final 132.4. Turn right, turn right, back. With your hosts, Ian Twombly and David Tulitz. This is Hangar Talk. Welcome to Hangar Talk, everybody. I'm Ian Twombly. And I'm David Tulis. And uh, David, our guest this week, I'm, I'm so excited for this. This is so cool. A young guy that you found named Mason Andrews who's done something incredible. He has, Ian, and I envy him. Mason flew around the world in a Piper Lance. Now, don't forget, he's a student at Louisiana Tech, and uh, he did this in July through October, and he had some surprises along the way, and we'll hear from Mason. Okay, cool. So a piece of equipment he probably used when he went around was an ELT, right? Exactly. Um, We know those are in most airplanes we fly. Now, there's been a lot of confusion in the past couple of years, and I I think it's going to get maybe just a little more confusing for a little while, and that's because 121.5 ELTs, the FCC has decided, will no longer be allowed to be certified and eventually won't be allowed to be manufactured, imported, or sold. And that rule takes effect on January 11th. 2019. That's right. There is a six-month grace period, so uh, the companies can clear out stock. So if you feel like you need a replacement ELT, the whole unit, and uh, and you want to stick with 121.5, you do have a couple of months to do that. Now, of course, the next question is what happens if you have like a battery or a part issue? And it looks like those, they will still be allowed to manufacture. So the rule was designed to enhance the ability of search and rescue. Yeah. Um, so folks could could search and find victims a lot quicker. And I guess that, that 406 band uh, sort of trumps the uh, the 121.5 ELTs, which were analog only. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And there's no question, you know, that 406 technology is better. I. A number of years ago, I went for a story down to um, the uh, center where they do the they search they uh, coordinate the search and rescue, and it's fascinating. And, and the way they described it is that a 121.5 ELT, if it goes off, which they're not as reliable as 406, but 
if it goes off, the search area is maybe the size of a city. And a 406 is more like, you know, maybe the size of a city block. And then a 406 with GPS is like, you know, the house on the city block. And so, yeah, if you want to be found, there's no question a 406 is a better piece of equipment. All right. So now we do have to point one thing out, though, which you, you touched on. We touched on the selling and uh, and maintenance and things like that. But now first and second generation 121.5 ELTs, they've been around you know, for a while. Mm-hmm. Now, if you have one of those in your aircraft, you could still use it, correct? Yes. Yeah, that's a great point. And I mean, AOPA has for years on this position been pretty consistent. And that is that, yeah, I mean, we say, sure, you should get a, a 406 if you can afford it. If you want that equipment, that is your choice. You should do that. It's a really good piece of equipment. But we have been against the mandatory implementation of 406 for everybody. And, uh, and that remains consistent. And so, yes, that's right. If you have a 121.5, you can definitely still use it. Although, like we said, there's, there's no question the 406 is a better piece of equipment. And the other thing to keep in mind at, you know, from a pilot's perspective, obviously, is that there's going to be extremely limited assistance provided in the event of a crash or in the event that an ELT locator goes off, especially in a remote yeah. location. So that's a key piece of information. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, the satellites that monitor, the frequencies don't monitor 121.5 anymore. And so, yeah, if you want your signal to be picked up, it's it's only going to be picked up by another airplane or, or you know, uh, something similar. It's not going to be picked up by a satellite. So, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right about that. Gotcha. Well, so uh, it's another reason to, to keep our eyes peeled for the sales on 406s. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Okay. So, hey, um, we're recording this now in the new year. You know, we took a little break for the holidays, but right before the end of last year, squeaking in under the 2018 deadline, two new airplanes were certified, two that I think are going to be pretty interesting. Yeah. The 11 seat Technum P2012 is called the Traveler. And that's been, it's been certified by the European Aviation Safety Agency or, or ESA. Right? Is that how you pronounce it? I always say IASA, but you know, yeah, yeah. IASA. <laughs> Once IASA blesses it, so you know the FAA usually is not that far behind. That's right. Yeah. So that'll be FAA certified shortly. You know, Technum, I mean, in the US at least, they started as an LSA manufacturer and then moved into certified. And But this will be their first sort of uh, cabin class twin uh, meant for transport. And in fact, Cape Air, you know, the little uh, twin engine scheduled airline that operates kind of through New England and then the Caribbean, they ordered, I think, 20 of them to replace their 402s. Yeah, and see, Cape Air is also, I just wrote about this recently too, Ian. So Cape Air is also one of the, uh, you know, one of the, partner pathways for a lot of younger pilots to get on board yes uh and and get some hours and then you know find themselves in the seat of an actual you know major air carrier so that's kind of good for cape air and it's a high wing twin so that kind of makes sense for the caribbean mm-hmm. absolutely yeah it's pretty interesting I, I think it'll be a good airplane for them and you know you made a good point about the the pilot pathway they saw that problem early and i know uh worked with riddle and JetBlue to create the guaranteed pipeline through cape air and um it's a really neat operation and i think it's great that they've got this airplane running into the future so the technum the 2012 and also the uh the citation kind of at the at the farther end the citation longitude you're right that is at the farther end that's a that's a 12 passenger jet it's called a super mid-size class the uh provisional type certificate was awarded to the aircraft on December the 20th. So it paves the way for operators to begin flight training in preparation for deliveries that were quote-unquote 
early next year, and now next year is this year, which is 2019. So I think we're kind of right on top of that, Ian. Yeah, so I know that provisional certificate, sometimes people don't even announce it, but uh, it does technically put them in the 2018 realm, so that's good. And yeah, this this is a really cool airplane. I mean, you're talking about 1,600-pound full-fuel payload. You know, they've gone thousands of hours in testing with this thing. You're talking 3,500 nautical mile range. So it's a it's a cool jet. The thing that kind of makes it stand apart, I, you know, I'm not a huge jet expert, but I can relate to a six foot tall flat floor cabin because I'm six feet mm-hmm. tall. So this means a lot of people won't have to <laughs> hunch over when they're walking yeah. around entering the, the jet or uh, leaving or just going from the passenger side to the cockpit side. Yeah, man. You know, it's like when the boss gets on, there's a big difference there with being able to walk up and have a flat floor and stand up straight versus, you know, the drop dial and kind of having to crouch down and that sort of thing. There's, there, you know, you're talking uh, big time there. So that's, uh, that's a great project for them. I think that's going to be really successful for Cessna into the future. Yeah, we'll have to keep our eye on that on the launch day. We've been uh, talking about it for a while. I think Tom Haynes went and flew it. So it's kind of cool. Yeah. And uh, we'll keep our eyes on on that from Textron. Yeah, yeah. Now, um, we talked about this at the lead, the Notice to Airmen publication. Now, David, be honest with me. Have you ever opened the Notice to Airmen publication? <laughs> well, I'm not a uh, I'm not a CFI, so I don't have to be up on it as much <laughs> as you would. No, I have not. Uh, Ian, I have not. Well, I've only I've I've only done it. I will say I, I had to do it for another reason once. I've done it, I think, twice. So yeah, not not one of the um, primary vehicles that the FAA uses, but. I think one of the reasons that none of us use it is because it's sort of useless. There's so much information, you just can't get through it. Well, I, the story that Dan Namowitz wrote um, that pointed that out, uh, the thing has is 477 pages of notums uh, in the current edition, and that's kind of a lot. I mean, that's, you know, yeah. Uh, they said the current edition would have only been 152 pages without part one yes. of the, the notice to airman <laughs> reporting system. So, uh, the, uh, that's a pretty thick publication. That's a lot to digest. Yeah, yeah, it is. So I guess, you know, to back up a little bit, if you're not familiar with the Notice to Airmen publication, notums that are more longstanding, often, you know, their navigate notums or uh, approach notums or something like that will be published after a certain period. And so once they're published, they go off the notum system. Theoretically, you won't get them in a briefing and that sort of thing, although I think there are exceptions to that. And then they'll be in the notice to airman publication. And so you are technically, you know, you're supposed to be kind of aware of those, but I don't think many pilots look at it. And so AOPA is part of a group that uh, looked at how to make the publication more effective or more useful. And part of that is, yes, yeah, slimming down part one of that, the FDC notums, and bringing a much more uh, manageable book into it. Now, I do look at notums before every flight and actually to blow our own horn a little bit i use the aopa flight planner to start with and i look at notums on that and also use an electronic flight bag as well to double check and then i'll file uh, generally i'll file a flight plan uh, you know vfr flight plan because i'm flying vfr these days and then I'll, I'll call and I'll ask the briefer if there have been any notums that have popped up along my route of flight. But I honestly have not read the, the publication, the entire book that we're talking about. Yeah. I still do look at notums. And, of course, we advocate for everyone to do that before every flight. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. And I think when you get a briefing and, 
you know, when you look online at the FAA's NOTAM uh, page, I mean, that's, you feel like you're probably covered there. And, in, you know, in most cases you are. So, yeah, the NOTAM publication just gives you that more, maybe more longstanding information or older information. And so starting with the February 28th publication, you will see a, a more slimmed down one. So I think that's good news. So one final question on the FDC NOTAMs. Now, is, are these NOTAMs, well, these are the NOTAMs that are, like sort of long-standing notums, right? These are the ones that are telling us about the specific, uh, you know, specific use of airspace, things like the CIFRA and that kind of thing. Or, or are these the notums that are telling me if I'm flying a commercial jet into Atlanta or Baltimore, are these the FTC notums that, that I would need if I'm a, a commercial pilot for hire? Yeah, so FDC is the way I usually think of it is is approach information and navigate information. So if you read them, it'll say like you know minimums for Category C uh, VOR approach into Frederick have been raised twelve feet. Gotcha. You know, it's like it's it's the minutia of approaches. So yeah, that that's generally the way I think of them. But yeah, you you're you're on the right track there. All right. Yeah. So hey, some good news again. Right before the end of the year, uh, those folks who have been to flyings in the past, I know and, and have loved them uh, for AOPA. Uh, we announced the locations for 2019, and uh, we've got some really really cool plans coming up and some some kind of blowout locations. Yeah, Ian. I'm glad you mentioned it. You know, the AOPA fly-in season is going to start off a little earlier this year here locally. May 10th and 11th here at AOPA headquarters in Frederick, and it's going to be a two-day fly-in, and we're also going to do that in conjunction with the D-Day Squadron's visit, and this is a big deal to commemorate part of World War II, so it's a chance for, for members to come over here and get two days of seminars as well as eyeball all these classic uh, Warbird aircraft that are going to head across the pond to take place at, to take part rather in that, that D-Day ceremony. So that's the May 10th and 11th one here in Frederick. Mm-hmm. And then we're going uh, June 21st and 22nd to Livermore, California. Now, have you ever been to Livermore, California? I haven't. Me either. I, I hope one of us gets to go. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. <laughs> I'm not sure if I will or not. Now, that's uh, that's June 21st and 22nd. So that's kind of, you know, about a month after the first one. So that's kind of cool. Yep, yep. And then rounding it out in Tullahoma, Tennessee, September 13th and 14th. Yeah, we're got, coming back to Tullahoma. It's a place we know and love well. We had a fly-in there was it the fly in there in 2015? I know I went there and covered it. Yeah. And um, it was way cool. And it was over, uh, we had a lot of event, events over by uh, the Beechcraft uh, Museum, which is a very, very interesting place. Mm-hmm. And Tullahoma, the people that live there uh, live and breathe aviation. I was amazed. Yeah. Yeah, it's a very cool spot. So one reason we're going back to Frederick is this: um, this is the 80th anniversary of AOPA. So um, you're going to find these kind of blown out uh, fly-ins in commemoration of that. So they're going to be full two-day events. And I think they're going to be great fun. Uh, always kind of tweaking with the formula a little bit and offering folks a little bit more. So uh, this should be great. should be really great. I'm looking forward to it. And it's always a good place to connect with AOPA members and to see new aircraft and find out about new technology and also gain some important skills. I think that's something that, that could be, couldn't be stressed enough that you, there's really some good skill building going on at the fly-ins. Yeah, that's absolutely right. So as we record this, um, our, our top story today the government shutdown. Now, I know that folks have probably been watching the news and they, they know all about maybe the reasons behind the shutdown. And so I don't want to get into that. But in terms of uh, impacts for aviation, 
you know, you wouldn't think with ATC still operating and the TSA and uh, customs to a certain extent that there would be impacts, but there there really are. I mean, the FAA, a sizable portion of it shuts down, and there are definitely going to be some impacts because of this shutdown. So one of the things that is uh, already impacted right now, Ian, are folks who are you know, folks that we depend on as pilots. We depend on air traffic controllers. Mm-hmm. And so the FAA controller training facility, the academy is what people call it. Now, so they've halted operations there uh, temporarily. And so, you know, the controller, I guess the, 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 the ranks of the controllers is already thin. So yeah. this is going to push push back a lot of the certified controllers. Yeah, absolutely. Another thing, FISDOs are generally closed. So those things like just kind of that everyday, you know, ferry permit, um, pilot services, part 141 school services, all that stuff is going to be suspended. Yeah, and and we're talking about this a little bit offline, but field approvals, depending on the process, that might be that might be affected as well with the FISDOs being closed. Yeah. Experimental certifications. Yes. All that stuff. Absolutely. Also, you know, medical certification. Now, this is it gets. I will say, okay, let's let's group these because both medical and pilot certification. It gets a little confusing because obviously the FAA is shut down in these areas, but designees can still operate. So, as we understand it, you can still take a practical test, assuming it's with a designee, and you can still go get a medical, assuming it's with an AME. However, the FAA on the medical side, you know, uh, which is maybe more important, won't be processing special issuance. So that's really important for folks like my friend Jeff Girth, who got a special issuance based on he had some vision challenges, you know, with colorblindness, mm-hmm. and that is a kind mm-hmm. of a common thing with a lot of people. Yes, and so uh, so that would be something that a lot of folks would. I guess the main thing is Ian, they would have had to have planned for this and already, yes. you know, got their, you know, got that in the pipeline and hopefully gotten it gotten it approved. But what if I just send a letter now? What would happen? Do you think? Yeah, yeah, you're. It's, it would just sit there. I mean, that's it. You know, nothing's happening. So you'd be at the back of the line and stay there for until it reopens. And that would be really important if you were a, a pilot who depended on aviation for a living. Yes, absolutely. Especially. That's absolutely right. Yep. If you're flying internationally, Customs and Border Protection, they will operate, but they're not doing overtime in many cases. So check with your airport of entry and make sure that if you're used to coming in and paying a fee for using an overtime slot, that they're going to be available. So that's a that could be an important one because obviously that's a huge hassle for some folks depending on where you're flying into. So basically, make sure that um, that before you go out of the country that you know the hours of operation is you don't want to be shut out if you're planning on yeah. coming back or you're or if you're, for that matter if you're planning on leaving um, because if you're dependent on something that's out of the normal hours, uh, you'll be kind of out of luck. Yeah, that's right. And now finally, one thing we should talk about that's staying open, and now this is a result of aviation uh, organizations advocating, because of the last shutdown, you might remember the aircraft registry closed. Exactly. And um, yeah, now that means, of course, that you can't process a sale or, um, or purchase of an airplane. But as a result of the reauthorization that passed this, uh, well, last year now, the aircraft registry is remaining open during the shutdown. That is so important because that keeps commerce going a little bit. And just think if you were in the, um, again, in the pipeline to buy or sell an aircraft, and you know it's pretty complicated to do that at times, mm-hmm. and there's a lot mm-hmm. of moving pieces, and so you can still register your aircraft. That's really, really good news that that is not affected. Yeah, so... 
I think for everybody's sake, we hope that ends soon. Hope we see some sort of, um, you know, push through the impasse there and uh, and get things back to normal and, and get people working again. Exactly. Also, I hope that hope that the folks can come together in Washington and make it happen. Yeah. So, hey, Dave, let's uh, let's hear about some uh, some earth rounding uh, with Mason Andrews. I, like I said, I'm so excited to hear about uh, his adventures and really cool that you caught up with him. And I talked with Mason in uh, Shreveport, Louisiana, at downtown airport. Uh, we had a little interview after we uh, met each other and uh, taxied around on the ramp. And let's hear from Mason. We're on site with Mason Andrews in Shreveport, Louisiana. Uh, welcome to Hangar Talk, Mason. How's it going? It's going well. Thank you for having me. Tell me a little bit about your aviation history before we get into that world flight. Okay, so I uh, started out in paragliders when I was 15 years old and then uh, decided to get my private pilot's license and ultimately decided to make aviation a career. So right now I'm a student at Louisiana Tech University in professional aviation and I have an instrument rating. Tell me how you got started in flying. It's kind of a unique story, and you told me a little bit off camera. Uh, you were talking a little bit about your paragliding, so tell me a little bit about that. I was on a trip to Switzerland when I was 13 years old, and I saw the guys paragliding, and uh, I'd never really thought about learning to fly before, even though I traveled a lot. And I decided to go on a tandem paraglider flight, and it was one of the most exciting and fun experiences I'd ever had. So. From that point forward, I wanted to learn how to paraglide, and I, I asked my dad every day, you know, can I can I get my paraglider's license? And finally, he broke and uh, bought tickets for uh, my family to go to Switzerland for three weeks while I learned to paraglide. That is pretty cool. Now, how old were you then? I was uh, 15 at the time. And then I read in the Shreveport Times, the local paper here, that you got you you were very interested in aviation, and so you, shortly thereafter, you started pursuing aviation on a fixed wing basis. Right. Uh, some of the people who I went to paragliding school with were airline pilots, one for Cathay Pacific and another for a cargo airline. And I, I decided that their job was pretty cool. They got they got to uh, leave work to go learn how to paraglide, so that, that might be a cool career field. So I initially just started with uh, you know, with, with soloing the airplane and, um, and learning the basics of flight and pretty quickly decided that's what I wanted to do as a career. So uh, what were your career aspirations before that? I mean, your dad is a pilot. You guys have a Piper Lance in the family. Did you think about aviation at all before that, or were you more interested in sports or something else? Well, I'm a musician, so I've always wanted to play music, but I also knew that music wasn't going to get me as far as a, as a more uh, well-recognized career field. So uh, at the time, I didn't really know what I was going to do. I had considered going into law, but as soon as I found out about aviation, that was 100% what I wanted to do, and I uh, realized that's what I would wanted to do my whole life. My, my dad actually is not a pilot. I, the, his uh, airplane is for, for business, and I fly him around to his uh, locations for business. Aha, uh -huh. okay, thank you for clarifying that. So the Piper Lance is a business aircraft, but your dad is not a pilot. No, sir. He uh, he, he has probably 40 or 50 hours from back when he was in college, and he had, he had learned to fly here at Shreveport Downtown Airport, but he never had his private pilot's license. Okay, gotcha. Now, you told me earlier on the telephone that you you guys are, uh, you're learning a little bit in a Piper Super Cub. Tell me what you're doing with that. All right, so I uh, decided to get a, a tailwheel aircraft that burns less fuel to uh, build time while I'm at Louisiana Tech so I can get my ATP. And uh, we, we went with a Super Cub, and I've just now started to, to learn to fly it, but it's really exciting and really fun. 
It's really hard too, isn't it? It is, yes, sir. <laughs> yeah, I've got about four or five hours in a Super Cub tailwheel version. But I've got my seaplane mm -hmm. rating, as I mentioned earlier, which is also Super Cub, a little bit different. All right, so um, tell our podcast listeners here at Hangar Talk why it is that we're talking with you today. What have you done that's so special? So about uh, three months ago, I got back from a circumnavigation flight for the world record for youngest pilot to fly solo around the world. And on uh, July 22nd, I departed Monroe, Louisiana, my hometown, for Oshkosh, Wisconsin, and returned back to Monroe, Louisiana on October 6th. So you had in mind a flight to cross the Atlantic, if I, if I understand correctly, to, to, to sort of honor Charles Lindbergh. And uh, what, first of all, what's the name of your aircraft? It actually has a name. Right, that's right. And uh, the aircraft's named the Spirit of Louisiana, which is... Uh, uh, sort of a callback to Charles Lindbergh's Spirit of St. Louis, but also a tribute to my state of Louisiana. I I've always been inspired by Charles Lindbergh's flight. I've read most of his books and also his uh, a, a biography about him. And uh, I really wanted to fly across the Atlantic Ocean and then realized that I was able to do it in my dad's airplane. So that was originally my goal, to fly solo across the Atlantic, which quickly developed into uh, a circumnavigation when I started looking at other people um, as mentors who had who had flown across the Atlantic as parts of their circumnavigation trips. So now we've had on Hangar Talk, we've had Shasta Ways, uh, who's a world rounder. Have you spoken with her? I haven't spoken with her, but I've, we have a lot of mutual friends, but she hasn't been in any of the events that I've been at so far. Now, also we have another friend, Adrian Eichhorn, who is a Marylander, and he had a bonanza that he flew around the world. Right. I talked to him for hours and hours at Oshkosh. He, he gave me a lot of the crucial advice that I needed on the trip. So did you have a lot of uh, support network, you know, folks in the background kind of cheering you on during this flight? I did. I had a lot of uh, local people in Monroe, Louisiana, who were really proud of me and who were really cheering me on. But my, my main support network consisted of my dad, who was uh, mission control, and I had to teach him a lot of the things about, you know, reading aviation weather reports, about flight planning, yeah, international flight planning with you know departure and entry points and in, into flight information regions. And also we had a team called General Aviation Support Egypt, which is uh, based out of Cairo. And they provide aviation logistics support for circumnavigators and also for other long distance general aviation pilots at a very low rate. And uh, pretty much everybody that's done this trip has used them for at least some parts of the world. They do a really great job and they have connections all over. That is cool stuff. Now, let's back up a little bit and talk a little bit, Mason, about why you wanted to do this, and you did it for a specific charity. Tell me a little bit right. about that. This is a really key part of your story. So the uh, initial idea came to me about doing the trip, and uh, I realized that it was a really unique opportunity to, to raise awareness for something that I was really passionate about, and that's MedCamps of Louisiana, which is located in Shooterant, Louisiana, between Shreveport and Monroe. And it's a special needs summer camp that's completely free of charge to the families who use it. So during the course of the trip, we were able to raise over $33,000. And even more money has rolled in since I got back from the trip, inspired by the trip. So it's, it's something that I'm really proud of uh, being able to do. Now, uh, I think I read that a friend of yours ha had gone to that camp or, or, um, or a friend of yours' uh, uh, kids. Explain, right. Just explain the relationship a little bit. So a really close family friend in Monroe, Louisiana, had sent, sent their kid with Down syndrome to med camps. And that's how I initially heard about it. And I, I became a counselor in training uh, three years ago. And then the next year, I was a full-time counselor. And this year, I was also a full-time counselor the month before I left on the trip. 
And give us the website for MedCamps Louisiana real quick. And you can learn more about MedCamps at MedCamps.org. For my website, you can go to MedCampsMission.org, uh, which uh, allows you to, to learn a little bit about the tie-in and, uh, and how you can help MedCamps. Outstanding. Now, speaking of money, this uh, this was not an inexpensive flight to fly around the world. Now, how did you raise money to do that? Or That's something that, that I didn't see in print anywhere. Tell me a little bit about it. how you got that together and some of the special equipment that you obviously had to have on the aircraft. When it came, when it came to fundraising, the... Most of what we were able to do was getting aviation companies to help out with uh, major expenses for the trip. For instance, Hallmark Aerospace covered the insurance for the trip. Champion Aerospace gave spark plugs. Um, I noticed that you have a bunch of stickers on your airplane. I saw there's like a restaurant sticker on there. I saw the MedCamp sticker on there. Um, you have inter, uh, what kind of batteries? Interstate batteries or uh, uh, or, or Concord? Concord. Yeah, we have uh, Concord batteries on the aircraft and. Uh, and a lot of it was just friends and family type fundraising, local small business owners or, or family friends who are small business owners around the country. We have a Montana ribbon chop house sticker on the plane of all places. I've never even been to Montana, but uh, uh, they, were, they were really supportive. Uh, CFM Enterprises in Louisiana was very supportive. So a lot of our, our funds were raised through that and through product placements and things like that. As well as Bose and David Clark were both uh, big supporters, given uh, headsets for the trip, both of which I used uh, extensively. How about avionics? Uh, when it came to avionics, Gulf Coast Avionics was uh, probably one of our, probably our biggest sponsor throughout the entire trip. Not only did they provide uh, tons of, of crucial equipment like the Garmin G5 that I have in the airplane, but also the autopilot and a, a ton of uh, work on the airplane, HF radio antenna. And they did all these things at cost and a lot of it for free. And uh, the, the owner of the company let me stay at his house at Oshkosh for the air show. So How cool is that? You had a lot of people in your back pocket helping you out. Absolutely. People I, I would have never imagined came out that I just uh, saw the vision in this and wanted to, to be a part of it. And really an unprecedented amount of support in the aviation community. Well, one other thing that we're going to let our podcast listeners know is that you flew over here to, uh, to downtown in Shreveport today. It's the day after Christmas that we're recording this with a special friend who also was helpful. Right. So uh, her name is Allie Hines, and she's uh, she's been great for flying around and uh, giving moral support and having a good flying companion because, uh, as all you guys know, there's a... Uh, there's nothing better than a good flying companion. Yeah, and you guys flew over here today. Did y'all start out in Monroe or in Ruston today? Yeah, we drove from Monroe to Ruston and got the plane and then flew here. Okay, so the Piper Lance is here at uh, Shreveport. Uh, a couple of things that our you know aviation listeners are going to want to know, mm-hmm. they're going to want to know some of the details about, all right, how do I do a, a flight across a large body of water? You had to have extra gas tanks. Now, that Lance holds, what, 84 gallons or something like that or 94? 94, yeah. So the, the Lance itself holds 94 gallons, which would have given me about five hours of fuel, about uh, 700 nautical miles at a normal cruise speed, um, which isn't nearly enough to make it uh, across the bodies of water that I went over. Now, uh, you, you could fly even further north from um, Labrador, uh, Canada, over to Greenland and Iceland and the Faroe Islands and over to Scotland. But um, for me, I decided to opt with a 160-gallon ferry tank that was inside the aircraft. And it was a... Um, fuel bladder that was uh, purchased from an unnamed retailer that allowed me to fly for uh, nearly 16 hours over 2,000 nautical miles 
more, more than anyone would ever like to fly, I think, especially in a small <laughs> airplane over a body of water. So that allowed me to make a 12-hour followed by a 13-hour flight, uh, the first from Canada to Portugal and the second from Portugal to Paris, France. So you were able to cut off a lot of the intermediary stops with that long-range tank. Right. That allowed me to go point to point, basically two legs straight across the Atlantic Ocean from Canada, which would have been much easier and much less time-consuming than going further north where you have to deal with the icing and more inclement weather as well as um, a lot of other issues. Thanks for explaining that. Now, you probably were wearing a, a, a safety suit, something like that? Yeah, I wore a, a Mustang survival suit, uh, an immersion suit. I also had a, a four-man Winslow life raft provided by my uh, deep water survival trainings in uh, Panama City Beach, Florida. So that was really great to have. I had a lot of survival gear. I had um, a Mae West that I wore during those flights. So all in all, I was very prepared for a uh, ditching, and I had gone through a lot of training for ditching, mm -hmm. but uh, did not anticipate one and took all precautions to make sure one didn't happen. Understood. So now, we didn't even talk about this before we got going on the chat. Now, how old are you? I'm 18 years old. Now, how old were you when you started the flight? I was 18 in about three months. And so you're going to be 19 at what point? In April of uh, 2019. So this is a pretty interesting endeavor for a young person. Tell me a little bit about that. I mean, what did, were you intimidated at all? Uh, there were times when it was really intimidating, and it was more so just the unknown because, uh, you know, if you take it one day at a time and you, you figure out things, because there's so many different climates in the world and different even social and political climates as much as weather climates. It, but if you take it one day at a time, one flight at a time, and you do your research and you talk to other people who've been in the same boat as you are, it's, it's really, uh, it's not as hard as you might think. Okay, well that's cool. And yeah, like we said earlier, you had a good support network. You right. had you had your dad. You had some folks in school. You had some friends, mm -hmm. um, and people could people follow you while you were on the journey. Yes, I had a Garmin InReach Explorer, which updates online every two minutes, so people were able to see basically in real time wherever I was. Only issue with that is. If I, for some reason, lose GPS integrity or something, then it, it would stop moving, which could, could scare people. So you've got to be careful with those. And speaking of scaring people, you had a little bit of a scary encounter yourself. Tell us a little bit about that. So on my flight from Subic Bay, Philippines, to Naha, Okinawa, Japan, originally to Kagoshima, Japan, but I diverted due to a a long weather diversion. I, I entered the airspace of the Republic of China, or Taiwan, as most people know it. And I was about 70 miles off their coastline, and uh, I knew I was encroaching their airspace, but I had a significant weather uh, pattern that had built up unforecast along my route of flight. At this time, I was also out of contact with air traffic control because I had lost them on VHF and didn't have a frequency for them, and my HF radio was inoperative. Mm -hmm. So I was completely out of contact with Naha control, who I would have been in contact with, Therefore, they did not know I had diverted, and I had been using relays to, to kind of tell them where I was throughout this thing. But all in all, it was, it was very limited control, and they didn't really understand where mm -hmm. I was. I had entered the Taiwan flight information region and was still very near the storm cell that I was skirting towards the, uh, the west side when I uh, saw an F-16 in about a 80-degree uh, bank angle, about a mile in front of me, just straight off left to right, you know, fastest plane I've ever seen insanely quick for a split second I saw him there and then I lost him and I, I wondered if it had just been a kind of a chance occurrence but I didn't really think so I didn't I didn't know what was going on and then a few minutes later it came up off my left wing about five feet wing to wing 
and um, it was a, a Taiwanese F-16 that had intercepted me and wanted me to fly back into Japanese airspace. So it stayed with me as I skirted around the storm and ultimately was able to re-enter Naha control and uh, start relaying with them again, and they, they began to understand my situation. So really, that was a weather diversion. You just strayed a little bit, a little bit too far into the, the Taiwanese airspace. That's correct. And actually, I, I became a bit of a national celebrity in Taiwan. I was uh, the, the Secretary of State or Defense or whatever had, had spoken about the intercept, and I was all over the news. There's a, a video of me on the Internet with 1.6 million views about my intercept in Taiwan. <laughs> Now, is that a, a video from the, the Taiwanese right, uh, that the, they posted? From the Taiwanese Apple Media. Oh. Oh, we'll have to check that out. That sounds perfect. Now, I know you were scared. How scared were you? In that case, I, uh, it was pretty obvious they weren't being aggressive or trying to, to engage me in any way. They were just letting me know they were there and uh, to maybe get me to check my situational awareness and make sure that I knew that I was in their airspace. And I complied with everything. I wasn't able to make verbal contact with them, but I, I could tell clearly that they wanted me to re-enter Japanese airspace. And as soon as I was able to re-enter the airspace, they peeled off back towards mainland Taiwan. And this is day or night? Right before sunset. Okay, so it's kind of late in the day, mm -hmm. and the light's getting a little little rough, and then also you're skirting a cell. So, I right. mean, this is serious stuff. Absolutely, and that's uh, most of my flights were pretty serious stuff, at least at, at one point or another. When you're on a, a you know, 10, 11 hour flight, which is the length of most of my flights, mm -hmm. you're going to run into inclement weather. Even It doesn't matter if you're in the desert or in the Arctic Circle or in the, in the tropics especially, um, you're going to run into, into significant weather and you've got to be prepared for them and you've got to have a way out at all times to figure out where you're going to go. That makes sense. So good preparation is a you know, good offense is the best defense. Exactly. And uh, there, were, there were times when it completely caught me by surprise. Uh, my flight from Pattaya, Thailand, Utapau Air Force Base, to Subic Bay, which is a former naval, naval base in the Philippines, I was uh, flying across Cambodia, Vietnam, and the South China Sea. And the, the forecast conditions were perfectly clear, uh, particularly over the South China Sea and at my destination. That I hadn't seen hardly a cloud since I left Vietnam. And it was, uh, at this point, it's 9, 9.30 at night, and the, it's completely dark, and I hear a British Airways aircraft request a diversion due to weather. At that point, my ears perked up, and I was you know, thinking, what are they seeing? Because I'm not seeing any weather whatsoever, and they're, you know, they're yeah. in VHF contact with me. So I turn off all the lights in my aircraft, and I lean forward over the glare shield and look really closely, and all along the horizon, there's lightning from left to right as far as I can see. Wow. So I called my dad on the sat phone and told him to start checking the METARs at all the, air the international airports in, in uh, the Philippines. And lo and behold, every single airport in the Philippines had thunderstorms and rain directly overhead. So uh, and that included Manila International, Clark Air Force Base, everything was totally covered up, except for Subic Bay International Airport. Mm -hmm. So I called Manila Center and I said, Lance 7-8 Charlie requesting uh, diversion to uh, Subic Bay International Airport. They came back and they said, Subic Bay is closed. <laughs> proceed to Manila International. And my, my initial flight plan was to Clark, but it was completely, I think they closed it due to the weather actually. So I called back and I said, 7-8 Charlie, uh, declaring an emergency, we landed in Subic Bay. So they came back and they said, the lights aren't on, there's no one at the airport, you know, there's no way to land. I said, we're proceeding to Subic Bay. I said, and I, you know, I, I wasn't uh, demanding, but at the same time I, I needed their help. So I asked them to get somebody out to the airport to turn the lights on. And I was, I was within a mile at, 200 feet when the lights came on. Well, you did the right thing, and you, right. you, you declared an emergency, took control, pilot in command decision, right. and you landed the airplane at Subic Bay. That's correct. And uh, in a lot of the countries I had landed at and passed through, 
um, that would have been a, a criminal offense. I landed without a, a landing clearance since there was no tower operation and center couldn't clear me to land. So the, the police showed up. They were the first people to arrive after I landed and, and taxied off the runway. And I fully believed I was getting arrested because in, in India or you know, the Emirates or Saudi Arabia, any of those places, I would, have, I would have been arrested. But they were actually really excited to see me. And they said, we've heard about you. And, you know, this is a really exciting. And they you know, shook my hand and I went on my way pretty much. So the moral of the story is that if you have an emergency, what? If you have an emergency, do what you need to do to get the airplane on the ground safely. Don't worry about what air traffic control wants you to do. Obviously, air traffic control is usually looking out for your best interest. But if you have to deviate from any of the rules, you know, in the in the FARs, as, as 91.3 says, you know, deviate from them as much as you need to enhance the safety of your flight. That is a key takeaway. That is a key takeaway, and I, I can't stress it enough. That's really good that you mentioned it. So, um, all right, so now you had a, 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 you were, I think, weathered out for a pretty long time. Was it in the Philippines? Right. I had uh, two weeks in Nagpur, India, due to the monsoon. And then in the Philippines, there were three major typhoons, two of which were some of the biggest typhoons in, in recent history, bigger than Hurricane Katrina, that um, passed through just north of me, both uh, Mankut and Jebi. Um, which were super typhoons and did a lot of damage in northern Philippines and in uh, Hong Kong. But both of those pretty narrowly avoided where I was, but I was still stuck there for about three weeks before continuing up to Naha, Japan, and then up further to uh, Yuzhno, Russia. So really, your, your flight probably would have been shortened by about half, right? Right. Between uh, maintenance troubles in Dubai, between the weather in Nagpur and the Philippines, I would have uh, been significantly shorter, much closer to the, the 30 to 40 days original plan. And altogether, how long did it take you to fly around the world? It took 76 days. And that's still a world record, we think. Has it been certified yet? I should have asked that at the beginning of this. It hasn't been certified because we've been, we've been pulling together receipts and everything and, uh, and still in contact with Guinness. Um, it, it will be certified. We're totally confident that it will. It's just uh, not been something that's in the forefront. I mean, I, I told my dad about a third of the way into the trip that, to me, it didn't really matter if it was certified. I know I did it, so what does it matter? But, and, then, and the record you were looking at was a younger, like sort of a youngest person to circumnavigate the world record, correct? Right, correct. And uh, we, we met all the, the distance qualifications because, obviously, you couldn't uh, fly to the North Pole and then do a, a one-mile circle. But, um, you know, we, we met all those qualifications and uh, we were approved for the route that I used. So uh, ultimately, when it's confirmed, it should be, uh, I should be getting the record. You ended up back in Louisiana. Gosh, it was right around the uh, middle of October-ish. What was the exact date that you were, ended up here in Shreveport and then the exact date that you ended up back home where you started? Right, I landed at uh, Shreveport Downtown Airport on the 5th of October. And then the next day on the 6th, I landed in Monroe at about... 8 a.m. On a, on a Saturday. Okay, so early October. Mm -hmm. So ha so altogether it took how many days? It took uh, 76 days total. So that was, uh, it was a little longer than expected, but still put me, I had a, about another 76 days buffer before I wouldn't have been <laughs> the youngest person. That's pretty incredible. And now you had a, quite a, a welcome home. It was a, a pretty big celebration at your home airport. And uh, I think Re uh, Representative uh, Abramson was there? Abraham. I'm yes. sorry, Representative Abraham was there. And he's a good, uh, a, a good pilot himself. Tell us a little bit about that. Right, Representative Abraham uh, flies a Cirrus SR-22 out of Monroe, Louisiana. He flies it to Washington all the time. And uh, he's actually running for Louisiana state governor now, and uh, he's been really great for general aviation in the state of Louisiana. Also for, for really uh, everything in the state of Louisiana as far as agriculture, which is one of our biggest things. So 
I'm a big supporter of him, and I hope he becomes the governor, and that'll help a lot with Louisiana State Aviation. Yeah, someone that's an aviator involved in the governorship would be would be fantastic. Absolutely. Also, now you had other people that met you. You had you had school officials. Your mm-hmm. dad was there, and um, you had a, quite a, quite a crowd. Tell me a little bit about how it felt when you actually showed up, and you you know that last leg of the flight. What were you thinking? Well, it was really exciting, but all in all, it was uh, it, it was the end of, of something that I had you know put a year's work into. So it was uh, it was it was a situation where I would have been perfectly content to hop out of the airplane and go home. But it was also really nice to see the whole community come mm-hmm. together for something that was really exciting and I think something that was really good for the the growth of Monroe. And also for general aviation. Absolutely, yeah. It was uh, the more people learn about these types of things, the more people get inspired to do them. Just like I was. That, that's really all we can hope for is the next generation of people coming up and learning to fly and uh, becoming airline pilots or military pilots. I mean, we, we need all of them right now. Well, I was going to ask and, and actually close on that. Tell me what can we do to get more people interested in general aviation in, in any kind of way? I think the main thing is just getting the word out because anyone who, who general aviation is, is on their radar and professional aviation even more so, if they know about it, they're going to be interested in it. Or at least most people, most people I know. It's just the fact that a lot of people, including myself up until when I was 15, didn't know that that was a valid career field. I think a lot of people are in the mindset that you have to be a military pilot to, to fly for the airlines or mm-hmm. anything like that. And that's not true. We really need people growing up in aviation and uh, learning to fly at young ages and, and becoming airline pilots and filling the gap that the older generation is going to leave. That's a good point there, Mason. And so are you able to teach or talk to uh, youngsters to help them follow in your footsteps? Um, I've been able to, to talk to a lot of people so far. And uh, once I get sort of a speaking schedule worked out and everything where I can, I can go meet with people um, in a more organized fashion, then I'll, I'll be doing it a lot more. Right now it's pretty much just uh, people reach out to me and say, hey, can you come here? And I say, well, yeah, that sounds good to me. So I'll come and talk to a group of people. Mm-hmm. And I'm writing a book right now, which will help. So I'll be in a book circuit sometime, hopefully by next summer, um, uh, telling people about my trip and, and selling books. That's fantastic. I didn't know you were a writer. I don't. I, I consider myself an okay writer, okay enough to, to tell my own story at least. And you also play guitar, I heard from Allie. I do, yeah, yes, sir. I, uh, I missed that a lot on the trip. There's a uh, there was a guitar in my FBO in Edmonton, Alberta, and I, I picked on it a little bit. That's pretty cool. I play electric bass. We have to get together and do some music sometime. Absolutely. And, and a little bit of a, of a shout out to the Flying Musicians Association. I don't know if you're a member of that organization or not. I didn't I didn't know about that organization, but I might have to become a member there. All right, so give us, uh, one more time, give us uh, the website that folks can go to for MedCamps and also your own uh, website. Just tell me a little bit about how folks can get in touch with you. Okay, so uh, to learn more about MedCamps, as I said, it's going to be medcamps.org. And you can donate to MedCamps through that website. Again, it's totally free of charge to the families, which means they constantly need donations to make the summer camp happen. And believe me, there's no better charity to support. Uh, For me, if you want to... Keep in touch with me. Keep track of me. You can go to medcampsmission.org. Uh, we'll update that periodically as I continue on writing the book and these things. And uh, for more uh, rapid information, you can go to Mason's Medcamps Mission on Facebook. Cool deal, Mason. We appreciate you being such a, a, a valiant uh, pilot for general aviation and spreading the word and, and you know getting out there and also encouraging other youngsters to follow in your footsteps. Well, thank you for having me on. I love to, to talk to people, and I'm, I'm love to get the word out like I am today with you. 
All right, David, there's a lot of open water around the world. So tell me, would you do that in a Piper Lance? No, I would not do that on a Piper Lance, Ian. Not even with, not even with a ferry tank uh, like Mason did. But uh, but it sounded really complicated yeah. to begin with. And I mean, you know, for a young person to do that, uh, that is really incredible. And uh, hats off to him. Those are the kind of folks that I want to see get into aviation. Yeah, so cool, so cool. All right. Hey, I think that's all the time we have for this week. I'm Ian Twombly. Our editor is Austin Hansen. And I'm David Tulis. Don't forget, you could find us on aopa.org slash hangartalk. And we're on iTunes and at the Sporties Takeoff app. All right. We'll see you next time. See you next time, Ian. Thanks. Hangar Talk from AOPA. Your freedom to fly.